This podcast is part of the Self-Defense Radio Network. Hi folks, welcome to another episode of today's survival show. I'm Bob Main, I'm your host. This is a practical survival show. I don't go tinfoil hat on you, I just try to keep things rooted in common sense. And oftentimes I have interviews on the podcast, and uh, this episode is no exception. I've got Cal Wilson, the author of uh, several books. One of the ones I like the most is Dirt Cheap, Valuable Prepping. And then I've also got Tom Abrams. He's an author of several books as well. So I've got both of these guys. We're going to talk to him. You're going to hear about Tom's books. We're going to we're going to cover a few of them and uh, let him talk. So gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Thanks for having, having me. me. Yeah. Um, Cal, uh, you know, why don't you go ahead and get started? You have had a chance to read some of Tom's work, haven't you? Yes, I have. Yes. Um, Tom Abrams, uh, I've read three of your books, and I was uh, very impressed with them, and that's why I, I reached out to him as, as a podcast uh, guest, and I thought uh, these would be three great books to talk about. I think the listeners will like, like hearing about them. Good. Tom, if you don't mind, uh, if you could give the listeners a little bit about you some background, because I'm sure there are some that uh, haven't had a chance to read your material. Sure, no problem. Um, as far as my writing goes... Uh, I write post-apocalyptic dystopian fiction, political conspiracies, and action-adventure, all fast-paced work. I've been writing uh, since since I could hold a pen or a pencil when I was a little kid. Uh, More than that, I was a reader, I think, which, you know, helped inform my writing. Uh, My day job is uh, as a journalist. Uh, I work at a television station in Houston. I've been doing that for almost 25 years. And that pays the bills, and the writing is a, is a really good hobby. My, my latest series, the Traveler series, uh, which Cal mentioned, uh, really seemed to strike a chord with people in a way I didn't expect and, uh, and led to things like being on your show today. Well, I'm glad to have you. You know, I'm kind of in the same situation. People who have been listening to me long enough know that uh, I have a regular day job. In fact, my day job takes me to the Houston area quite a bit, and that pays the bills. And doing these podcasts and things, that's my hobby, and it's kind of my source of fun every week. Yeah, it's a nice creative outlet, I imagine. Yeah, it is. Cal, for people who also may not know much about you and your writings, talk a little bit about that first before we get into the interview. Uh, sure. I wrote uh, Dirt Cheap, Valuable Prepping, which is a nonfiction book on prepping. Uh, and it's kind of uh, geared towards uh, the cheapskate, you know, the tightwad who doesn't want to spend a whole lot on, on prepping. And I think I've included a lot of stuff in there that you won't read in, in a lot of other books um, as far as ways to prepare for various things. And it's it's uh, a product of a couple of years, uh, several years of just listening to podcasts and reading books on prepping and just kind of have these, having these nagging questions in my mind. What about this? What about this? What about this? You know, and, uh, so I, I really enjoyed writing that Dirt Cheap Valuable Prepping book. And recently I just finished a book called uh, EMP, The End of the Grid as We Know It. And it is a fictional book. Um, the plot is, is not too original. It's a guy on a business trip when an EMP attack happens, and it's 
about what he experiences on on his hike home and what he has to go through. And it's kind of uh, another, uh, in the sense, it's similar to dirt cheap valuable prepping in the sense that I've I've read other EMP books and I've had other questions in my mind about, you know, nobody seems to be mentioning this or this, you know, and so uh, I threw in some things in that book that I think are kind of uh, out of the ordinary as far as EMP books go. Uh, but well, terrific. Yeah, that's uh, sales are going pretty good right now, and you know, knock on wood, we'll see we'll see how it goes. Well, thanks for the introduction from both of you. I assume that the books can be found on Amazon primarily, right? Yes, correct. Uh, books are on Amazon. The audio books are on Amazon, iTunes, and Audible. Good. And to all my listeners out there, please remember, if you're going to order these on Amazon, go through my Amazon store at todayssurvival.com. Well, Cal, I know you got some questions for Tom. Why don't you take the lead? Yes, thanks. Um, Tom, you've written other books, and I, I don't want to just zero in on Home, Canyon, and Wall, although those are the three that I've read. Um, you've written other books, including Intention, Sedition, Spaceman, uh, and the three books, Crossing, Advent, and Refuge, the last three of which are Kindle World books that are part of Steve Concoli's Perseid Collapse book. Is, is, that, is that all correct? Yeah, I also um, have three books that were traditionally published that are the action-adventure books, the Jackson Quick series. Um, and, and all of them, even though they're different genres, they all kind of fit together in that it's this idea of of the world not being quite what we want it to be, and uh, they're all kind of fraught with conspiracy and, and evildoers and the triumph of good over evil, or at least you hope the triumph of good over evil. Yep. Well, I'll, I'll tell you where I'm coming from. I was This last uh, spring and early summer, I was just finishing up my, uh, my EMP book, and I was kind of in the, the polishing stage of it, uh, and I was looking around for other uh, post-apocalyptic uh, thriller books to read, and I came across uh, your three books, Home, Canyon, and Wall, uh, which are part of, it's a the series is called The Traveler. Uh, and I got about, uh, it, there was a lot of action, a lot of edge-of-your-seat type, uh, type stuff going on, and I got maybe a third of the way through the first book, and I had to kind of point out to myself that there wasn't a whole bunch of there wasn't a bunch of vulgar language, you know, and, and there wasn't uh, the filth that you see in a lot of books. It's, these are pretty clean uh, language-wise, uh, which I really appreciate. Um, and uh, there's not, no uh, in, in graphic uh, sexual scenes. And so I started, that's something I noticed, you know. So I, I started uh, reading further, and uh, this, is a good, this is a good series here. Uh, so anyway, it's... Um, there's some prepping information, there's a lot of action, and there are Christian themes and uh, no bad language, no filth. Uh, and it's difficult to make uh, action and thriller books that, that don't have a bunch of bad language. So uh, I know it's difficult to do, but uh, well done. And I wanted to promote those books uh, to our listeners, because uh, I know our listeners are going to like them. Uh, they're real action-oriented, but no, no bad language. So... And I know that's hard to do, so good job. Oh, well, thanks. Um, I, don't, I don't use language, uh, foul language in any of my books, uh, primarily because I just don't think I need it. Um, 
you know, I'll occasionally a character I'll say or I'll write, you know, a character cursed under his breath or something like that. But, you know, much like comics oftentimes suggest that you don't have to work blue to be good. I don't feel like you you have to use foul language to to write a compelling novel. I'm not criticizing those who use it. That's fine. But I just made that conscious decision not to do it. Yeah. Can I interject something about that? Sure. Uh, Tom, I think that's great. I don't use that kind of language on my podcast either. I have found, you know, I've been doing this over six years, almost seven years now, and I agree with you. I can I can create a compelling podcast or radio episode, whatever you want to call it, and I can get the information across, and people seem to like it without having to use any foul language or any kind of references like that. And again, I'm not criticizing people who do, but hats off to you. Oh, well, thanks. I appreciate it. Well, I just think in this genre, you know, when there's people getting shot at and killed and, and people are dying of this plague, um, I, I think just in real life, it, I would kind of understand a few bad words, you know, but uh, in these books, uh, you manage to avoid that language, even if if I, I personally thought it would be understandable, but it's not, it doesn't stand out. It's, it's not like somebody falls off the roof and lands on their face and says, oh, darn, you know which would, I think, kind of stand out and make it look too obvious. So anyway, I, I thought it was well done as, as you did it. Um, anyway, that's, that's uh, why I, I reached out uh, to you and, and wanted to talk to you about these books. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the other books. Um, the Kindle World books are, I, I don't think our, our listeners would know about that. That's, that's where somebody comes out, in this case, Steve Concoli, uh, with the Perseid Collapse book, and then he's got, he, he approves, I guess, authors who want to write kind of no, novellas of <clears throat> of those characters and that plot just kind of off to the side. Is that is that kind of how it works? Sure, it's close. Uh, essentially, it's fan fiction, but it's, it's licensed by Amazon. And what happens is Amazon and the author of the world, or, you know, a popular series of books, reach a deal where Amazon licenses the use of the characters in that book and the ideas of that book or that series. And then anyone can write uh, in that world. There are, there's a canon of, of rules that you have to adhere to. Um, you, know, you can't necessarily uh, kill off a main character in the series or you know, use graphic violence where it's not called for, those kind of things. But... Essentially, you can write whatever you want, and you don't need um, the author's permission, uh, or they don't approve any of it. Amazon kind of looks through it just to make sure that you've adhered to the canon, but then you can, anybody can publish under the rules of, of that particular world. In my case, uh, I'm a friend of Steve's, and he asked, when, when he knew he was going to get a Kindle world, he asked a handful of authors he knew if they would write in his world. And so uh, I agreed, and that was the first post-apocalyptic stuff I wrote was uh, a series of three novellas that together make one long story set in in the world he created, which essentially is, uh, without giving too much away, there's an asteroid that hits the Earth, but then something else happens, too, that compounds the effects of, of, of that asteroid. And so he tells the story of one family's survival, I tell, I take 
one scene from one of his books, and I expand upon that and create a whole parallel storyline using the rules of his world. Uh, and and I, Amazon probably has at least 50 of these worlds now, ranging from Hugh Howey's Wool and his series to Steve Conkley to Russell Blake's Jet series. In fact, there's a new one coming out, uh, Nick, Nicholas Sansbury Smith. He wrote the Extinction Cycle series, which is incredibly popular. He has a world coming out in October, and they asked me to write in that, and that's what I'm working on right now is, is writing. I'm actually writing a full-length novel, a companion novel to his series. Wow. Okay. So the original book, I guess, would be around 80,000 words, give or take. And, and I, I heard that these World Series books, it can be like, like 20,000 words. If, <clears throat> that- if, if, yeah, if you're contracted by Amazon, which I've been in both cases, um, like I didn't just choose to go out on my own and write it like a lot of people do. I was, you know, they actually asked me to do it. They want you to write at least 25,000 words. Um, for, for Nick's book, he actually asked me to write at least 50 because the story I was writing, he really wanted to be a full fledged, uh, novel. And so I agreed to do that. But yeah, they can, if, if let's say you, you know, I, I picked and I just wanted to write in the GI Joe world, it could be 10,000 words and, you know, sell. Okay, cool. So yeah, it, it kind of as uh, an example would be like the original Star Wars movie, you might you know, want to write about Han Solo and an adventure he had before, before the, this movie started or something. Is that, I have, exactly, is that about right? exactly what it is. It's, fa- it's fan fiction, and um, it's just Amazon has figured out a way to, to contractually license it and make it, make it legal so that everybody, everybody wins. And, and you, you know, as an author, you, you split you know, the, the proceeds of your book with the author who created the series. Okay. Um, what's what's your the history of your writing? How how um, how young were you when you first started writing? I've been writing stories since I was a little kid. Um, I was a voracious reader and and always liked the idea of transporting people to another place or time. My the first novel I wrote was in the late '90s, and it was sort of a crime thriller, and it was awful. Uh, it'll never get published, but uh, I learned a lot in doing it. I had a lot of good constructive criticism from industry professionals who told me what I did well and, more importantly, what I didn't do well. And so then over the next 10 years, I picked up and put down another six or seven books that I started writing and got to a certain point and then just didn't feel it anymore. And finally, uh, in I want to say it was 2009, I started writing Sedition. It took me three years to write it. Because I wasn't writing consistently, I hadn't gotten into a. I didn't know how to write a novel really, in terms of the, the fact that it kind of, you kind of have to sit down every day and do it. So it took me three years to do it, and I tried getting an agent, didn't work, and then I decided to self-publish it, and it did pretty well, and ended up getting purchased by a uh, by a traditional publisher, and then they bought my next three books, and those three books. Uh, the Allegiant series, um, doing okay, but I never did as well with Sedition uh, with them as I had on my own, so I bought the rights back. So now I, I own that book again and wrote a long overdue sequel to it, which came out this summer. And then I wrote the the, the three Traveler books, and um, I've just finished, in addition to writing the Nicholas Smith book, um, I finished, and it's an edit right now, uh, Spaceman which comes out in November, and that's also a post-apocalyptic book. Um, and, uh, again, you'll find uh, 
no, no bad language in that one. Okay. <laughs> I, I hey, Cal, if I can... Sorry, go ahead. No, sorry about that. I thought you guys were uh, done with that point. Uh, Cal, I think you also had some specific questions for Tom on some of his uh, writings, didn't you? Yeah, I was going to ask uh, Spaceman. I heard you on a different podcast, uh, you know, one that's almost as good as today's survival podcast, um, <laughs> <laughs> where you talked about Spaceman. Uh, I think the basic premise is uh, somebody in the, in the space station in outer space while a coronal mass ejection happens. Is, is that about right? That's, that's exactly right. Uh, there's, there's a coronal mass ejection. Uh, there's an astronaut. There's several astronauts on the International Space Station when this happens. And uh, NASA and the space weather community sort of misjudge what's going to happen through a series of events. And the ISS is, is somewhat crippled uh, while the lights go out over most of the Earth. And I, I got help from uh, an, an astronaut who spent two different tours on the ISS. I have a member of the ISS team helping me. Uh, and then a space weather expert who is also a former shuttle astronaut. All three of them have, have read the manuscript and then, you know, given me really good advice about where where I'm right and where I'm wrong. You know, for example, yeah. if, if, if a guy's going to put his hand to the right as opposed to the left on the space station, where would that button be? And so, yeah, so it's, it, it reads, it, it's, you know, where... The Traveler series sometimes can be a bit, a little bit far fetched. Um, Spaceman, I think, is really realistic. Well, I, it was amazing the premise. I'm not hinting for uh, uh, <coughs> how how it turns out, but <coughs> I just thought um, I can't think of a worse place for a person to be during a coronal mass ejection than a space station. You know, <laughs> yeah. that's that's the idea. <laughs> and and you know he's not you know he's not a superhero he's not some ex special forces guy or whatever he's just an engineer who happens to be an astronaut and he has to figure out a way to get home and then you know assuming he gets home he then has to figure out uh how to get back to his family which uh is not an easy thing to do wow okay well I'll look forward to that that's coming out uh november is it Yes, the first book's out in November. Okay, cool. All right. Um, are you uh, are you personally a prepper? Well, I'm kind of a prepper light. Uh, I get asked that question a lot. Um, I don't have the kind of uh, stash that Marcus Battle has in in the Traveler series. But you know, both of you all have spent time here in Houston, so you know we're hurricane prone and flooding prone, and we lose power a lot. So, oh yeah. yeah. So I'm always prepared for that. We have a generator. Uh, we always have a big supply of water and canned food, a uh, huge drawer of batteries. We have a portable battery that, you know, can charge our electronics. So, you know, we're not completely uh, unprepared, but I wouldn't say that we're as prepared as we could be. Uh, we could probably last a couple of weeks, but not necessarily six or seven months like some. Well, and so it sounds like you're like me. You're a common sense prepper. You're a prepper light. That's a good way to put it. And you have identified what your what your um, areas of concern are in Houston as far as disasters that could happen to you. And I think you 
you've you've probably got you've you've zeroed in on the major one, which is either hurricanes or large storms that knock out power. That happens here in San Antonio. Not quite so much the hurricanes, but the power outages. Well, and you all have flooding too, which can cause real power problems. Yeah, we did, and earlier this year we did. So yeah, I mean we we feel like. You know, I, I sometimes wonder if, if I should be better prepared uh, than, than I am. I don't know that you could ever be fully prepared for, for any eventuality. But I do feel like if, if, if we lost power right now for the next couple of weeks, uh, we'd be okay. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of a sliding scale, you know, that the, the shorter-term disasters seem to be the most likely to happen. Uh, you know, a, a week or two of a flood or hurricane uh, – uh, versus, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, you know, a huge pandemic or a societal ending event or something uh, seems to be the least likely to happen, but it's something that you still need to prepare for, you know, uh, just in case. I agree. Uh, that's, I, I, totally, you know, I totally agree that, you know, you, the, the reason you prepare is for the unexpected, not what you expect. I think that's what Marcus Battle would agree to. <laughs> yeah, your, exactly. your protagonist there he Marcus has, has that one nailed huh <laughs> yes yes um, tell him next time you see him I'm, I'm Facebook friends with him uh, and um, pass along the uh, the kudos for me next time you see him Tom uh, I'll um, do that and funny story about so one of my Facebook profiles is the protagonist in that series Marcus Battle and the reason for that is so I have an author page which is um you know, a fan page, so I can't necessarily communicate with people like you can with a normal account. I also have a page for my for my television, where I work at the television station, and because I work at a TV station, I can't just necessarily use my name the way most people can. So when I got asked to join some Facebook groups, I had to create a personal profile, and I wasn't just going to create, you know, I wasn't going to use John Smith, so I decided to make it the protagonist of my book. Mm-hmm. Well, he's got some good preps. Uh, he had this barn uh, with off-grid freezers. Uh, he had, uh, I think, dried venison, and he reused animal fat all the time. I thought that was impressive. A uh, whole ton of antibiotics. He had frozen well water, and he even had a natural gas well in his backyard, uh, which I had only heard about once before, but that was, that was very impressive, I thought. Well, I originally wrote that a little differently, and I reached out to an oil and gas expert I know, and we talked about the way that that could actually happen. And, um, I mean, it could. It's, and so it's maybe on the edge of plausibility, but it, but it is plausible. Uh, and it enables Marcus. He lives in a part of Texas where natural gas, uh, dry natural gas is pretty, pretty common. And so by putting him there uh, on the land that I did, it made it, it made it feasible and allows him to be completely off the grid and, and have, have power when uh, it's not quite as consistent anywhere else uh, in Texas. Well, it is possible. I've, I've seen, uh, you know, every once in a while I look on these uh, prepper real estate websites, and it's usually involving, a, you know, a house with a huge bunker underneath or something, but I have come across houses where, there's a natural gas well just in the backyard, you know, and, and so it is, I have seen it, you know, it's, I, w- I would love to live in a place like that, but it's pretty expensive. It might not be so expensive outside of uh, Rising Star, Texas, though. True, in the middle of nowhere, when you own the, <laughs> when you own the mineral rights, and that's the key, because, you know, in Texas, um, a lot of people own 
own their house and they own the top of the land, but they don't own what's underneath. Yep. Yep. That's true. Hey, um, you and I had an email exchange about this, uh, and it's, and it's real. I had never heard about this. At one point, uh, your character, I think in book, uh, two, uh, leaves the, um, I can't remember what it's called. Oh, the Jones, which is like, uh, the Roman Coliseum. And he makes it out alive. And then he, he's on his way hiking with a few friends to, I think, Lubbock. And they have no water. And, um, so, uh, the protagonist, um, finds a, uh, a plastic baggie and a, a, a pipe cleaner. And then he wraps the, the plastic baggie around some leaves of, of a living tree. And then ties it with the pipe cleaner, and and after, as the day goes on, that those leaves drip out some water. Do, do I understand that right? Yes, um, and essentially it's just the condensation and the difference in temperature. Um, it's kind of a greenhouse effect, uh, and it does it does work. In fact, I had a reader um, not long after Canyon, which is the second book, came out, write me and say that. She was she was so excited to see that that she'd never read about it before. She tried it and it actually worked. So um, you know I don't know that I don't know that you could necessarily get the amount of water uh, that the characters in the book uh, get, but you certainly you know depending on the on the weather conditions you you know the condensation would be such you know like when you come out to your car in the morning uh, and it's coated in, in in dew or the grass has dew on it if you're able to trap that. Um, you know, uh, turning to spaceman, it's similar to what they do on the ISS. You know, they don't have running water. They actually uh, utilize the humidity in the air uh, and off, say, drying towels uh, to recycle water. So the concept is, is sound and, um, and not common, but, but certainly possible. Well, it makes sense. I just never heard it. That was, that's incredible. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try that one of these days because I've heard that plants are just kind of evaporative systems basically uh so it would make sense that you can put a plastic bag around some leaves and then in the sunlight uh get gather some uh some condensation so that that was incredible i had never heard it before but uh that was that was amazing um all right one thing i wanted to mention uh which i was really impressed with the dialogue uh in the three books um, and spoiler alert, like like with the rest of this uh, interview, um, Marcus Battle and his uh, wife and son, uh, and the son is is about to succumb to this um, pneumonia, this uh, this plague, uh, and the the father says, um, "Well, you're going to heaven," and and the son says, "Yeah, but I'm still afraid," and the father says, uh, "Well." A lot of people who are going to heaven are still afraid, but God knows the best time uh, to bring somebody to heaven, and so that's why He does it. And I, I thought that was really good, really good dialogue. I mean, that's almost something you know I could write down and, and turn into a poster, you know, to put on the wall here. You know, that was <laughs> you're, you're that was really fun. good. Well, well hey, done. Uh, you know, uh, and, and I've gotten you know I've gotten some people who've read the books who 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 like the the religious references, and then I've had others who give it one star because they feel like it's too heavy-handed or hits them over the head with it or they could they could do without it, and that's fine, too. Um, you know, I, I, I include faith, and I also did this in the, in the Crossing series. It was probably a lot more subtle, um, although, you know, the, the names of the books themselves um, evoke 
faith, you know, Advent being the third book, um, uh, an idea of coming home. But I feel like you can't live in, in, in an apocalyptic environment and faith or lack of it not be a part of, of your daily existence. And so that's yeah. kind of why I include it. It's, it's not necessarily that I'm trying to evoke some or, 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 or give some religious message or, or, you know, force anything down anybody's throats. The idea is that these characters um, either rely on their faith or they question their faith. And I just think that's something that's natural for anybody um, in, in, in that kind of environment, when you're forced to do things that are contrary to who you think you are. Right, right. And I agree with that. Yeah, it's a post-apocalyptic uh, setting. So, yeah, there's, there's uh, bound to be a lot of discussion. Um, and uh, that reminds me, I, um, well, let me, let me get up on my soapbox here, um, <laughs> because this is kind of a pet peeve of mine, that um, on occasion an author will... Uh, include Christian themes, and in your books you had some Bible quotes. I mean, it was, it's, it's not a Christian book, or it's not a religious book, it's an action book, but on occasion your characters will pray and quote the Bible, and I've, I've, my books have been on the receiving end of this too. Anti-Christian people will come along and trash the books um, just for that reason, you know, it's it's like, uh, you know, crossing your legs and, and banging the knee, you know, with uh, and then you have that reflex. It's just automatic. You know, some people just hate any reference to the Bible. So they'll they'll uh, put in a one star review and trash the book. And but anyway, meanwhile, uh, Christians out there are hesitant to come to the defense of of books that that uh, come under attack like that. So I I would hope that. um that can change. I, I would hope that Christians would come around and and notice what's going on and come to the defense of a book that that quotes the Bible and has Christian themes in it like this. So anyway, that's that's kind of a pet peeve of mine, and it's happened to me too, where I've had books that are not, um, you know, my dirt cheap valuable prepping book was it was nonfiction, you know, and and there were just a, a couple of references. Uh, to the Bible, but that's all it took, and I, I, I got trashed by a couple of reviewers. I, I think uh, anyway. I think we Christians need to come to the defense of, of books that are under attack like that. Well, I will say that it doesn't bother me. Um, I mean, I don't like the one or two star reviews because of that, and I mean it, that it's fine. That's people's prerogative. But I will tell you that sometimes if people leave those negative reviews. Uh, where they say that there's too much religion or too much, you know, heavy handedness with Bible quotes or, or whatever. Um, that actually draws other people to read it. So, you know, it's fine if that's why they want to trash it. Like I said, I don't necessarily like the one or two stars because of it. That, that's okay. Um, but sometimes the most critical reviews are the ones that get other people to read the books. So I'm okay. So that's, that's great too. <laughs> yeah. You know, Tom, Tom, yeah. let me say something. Tom, let me say something about that. You are absolutely correct. You know, if you go to either of my podcast feeds on iTunes, Today's Survival Show or Handgun World Podcast, read the reviews. I've got a couple hundred reviews on there. Same thing. You know, I have noticed an increased uh, amount of listenership shortly after somebody puts a one-star negative review up there because there's for every one-star negative review, there's 25 good ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, I got this one review of the books in England, and the wom- and, and, it, and it was a, a woman who, who left the review, and, 
and and she thought it was you know essentially a book filled with with violence uh, who who people you know people like to gratify themselves through violence through reading about violence that that was the only kind of person that would like the book um, and I mean it was like an extreme reaction to the violence in the book I mean it is a post apocalyptic book you kind of know what you're getting um, but I saw sales go up after that review. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Great. Hey, um, I want to ask you, the, the first book in the series, uh, Home, was released in 2015, and it featured a pandemic uh, called The Scourge. Um, was there any influence from the Ebola scare in 2014 uh, that, we, that we all went through? To, did that influence you in, in, uh, in the pandemic that, that you described in Home? Maybe subconsciously, you know, I was actually in Dallas and reporting from the hospital the day that the first patient, you know, in the United States was diagnosed when they released that he was diagnosed. Uh, I was in Dallas covering a gubernatorial debate and they rushed me over to the hospital to cover that because that broke. So maybe subconsciously it did. Um, I just knew that I wanted to write uh, a, a pandemic and I wanted to write it years after the pandemic had happened. Uh, and use flashbacks to talk about how it particular, uh, affected one particular family. Um, so, so maybe, but I, you know, I chose, um, I, I chose the one I chose because it, you know, it was a, it, it has been a plague in the past and has, re, you know, and just happens to resurface. Um, and I used today's political climate and what's going on in Syria and in Ukraine, you know, to kind of be the, 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 the match that lights the plague um, through refugee camps and, and that, that kind of thing. I think today's political climate probably was more of an influence of how I wanted the disease uh, to spread uh, than, than Ebola, but I'm sure it was in the back of my mind having covered it. Well, one thing I remember about the Ebola scare is the, it, it, the Keystone Cops sense of, of, the, uh, of the powers that be in the United States. I remember watching one press conference People were trying to say, "Is it possible to get Ebola sitting next to somebody in a in a bus?" And in the same press conference, they got two or three different answers. And uh, I, I just remember it was so poorly handled. Um, and it seems like in your book here in in Home, I, I I gathered there was some of that where the government was doing some work, but but not doing it very well or, or something like that. As far as getting the the drugs out, yeah, they, I don't think I don't think we're prepared. Period. I mean, I don't think you know something that large scale that spreads that fast. I don't think any government anywhere can handle it. In part because of human nature. Uh, in part because I just think you know uh, the best the best laid plans ultimately are affected uh, are put into effect by humans, and we're all fallible. And so there are going to be mistakes, and there are going to be errors. And ultimately, I just yeah. don't think, I don't think whether the I don't think the government or I don't think we're equipped, period. We're not equipped to handle something that's that large scale. Uh, and I do think it's just a question of, of when something like that happens. It may not be as, as dire as Ebola or, or a pneumonic plague, but you see what's going on with Zika and how it's, I mean, you know, the health officials here say it's, it's going to come. It's just a question of when. There will be a, transmi- a local transmission in Houston, it's just a question of when, and that's because you can't stop something like that. No, you can't stop it. You just get prepared for it. And well, I, there's, there's, 
Yeah, and I think, and I just think that, that, you know, as maybe this is a little bit too much of a political statement, but, you know, I think we've seen in every aspect of our lives that in some ways government is good at handling things, and in other ways the government is not who you want handling things, uh, regardless of who's in power. And, and, and dealing with a large-scale uh, apocalyptic-type event is not something I think the government can handle. Yeah, it's one of the characters in my book kind of uh, goes on a tangent uh, with this idea that it seems like the government prepares for the last disaster. You know, uh, after it's all settled down and done and we've figured out, then that's what they're preparing for. They're not looking forward to what what might possibly happen later, you know. Yeah, and, and that's a really good point, and it's probably true to some degree. I mean, and, and, I, and I guarantee there are lots of things that, that the various government agencies have done that, that we know nothing about in terms of preparing for large-scale disasters. But I just think it's impossible that it's impossible for any government or organization to be prepared for something that would affect 300 million people. Yeah, that's just way too large. That's too – you're right. I mean, that's such a big group of people – there's no way, and and it's unfortunate that there are so many people that that don't understand that. They're still thinking the government's going to take care of them. Well, I think that's yeah. why you have preppers, right? People who yes. who, who decide exactly. that they need to be self reliant uh, and take care of themselves. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, that's that's fine, Cal. Go. Hey, hey Tom, I've got another uh, question. Uh, in in all three of your books here, uh, Home Canyon and Wall. Um, did you borrow any scenery from uh, from Nazi Germany? I, it occurred to me that um, the brown hats were kind of the mid-level uh, bad guys in in the uh, the cartel, uh, kind of analogous to brown shirts, you know, in the Nazis. And I remember one of the characters um, got off track and hiked behind uh, some track houses and saw big piles of bodies. That just kind of uh, brought back in my mind images of of the death camps of Nazi Germany. Was that uh, uh, on yeah. purpose? Yeah, there was a yes. Um, the that particular scene in the garage where there are all those bodies. Yeah, that was kind of a reference to you know a, a totalitarian regime, uh, it, it, specifically the Nazis. But uh, and and you're the first person to have caught that actually. So that's awesome. Um, but the, the hats, uh, that was, I was trying to create a very stylized Western environment, and that's where I came up with the hats. And to, to delineate, I wanted there to be sort of, an, sort of an army kind of idea behind them or a rank system, and the way that they would identify themselves easily would be the, the different hats. Okay. Um, on the, and on the other hand, um, a lot of these post-apocalyptic books have bad guys who are pretty flat, uh, two-dimensional. And you have one guy, uh, Roof is his name, and I was amazed at how kind of three-dimensional and complex he was. There, was. there were actually some parts of his history that made you almost kind of like the guy. Um, on the other hand, he was a pretty evil um, and, uh, you know, for fun, he would, he would, uh, pick on and almost kill other people around him like that guy Skinner. Uh, so anyway, this is different to have a antagonist who kind of has a lot more to the, to the story there. And I, I thought it was well done. Um, 
Was there any thinking that went into the idea of having more than just a flat antagonist? Yeah, I wanted there to be almost, you know, battle, the main character battle is damaged, right? I mean, he's uh, been living on his own, isolated for years. He's, he's a veteran who experienced horrible things, uh, you know, suffered P- PTSD even before the plague. And so he's a damaged guy who's struggling to stay on the right side of things. And so I, I kind of wanted Roof to be almost his doppelganger. Right. I mean, the the guy who who experienced similar things, but went the opposite direction and struggled, who was bad, but struggled to try to be struggled with the good in him uh, as as opposed to battle, who was struggling with the bad in him, but trying to stay good. So um, I I, I initially Roof, I don't think was going to have quite the depth that he did. But as I started writing the story, it became more and more important to me uh, to try and make him almost the, the anti-battle. And I, I felt like, particularly in the third book, that it was important that, that you somewhat sympathize with Ruth almost. Uh, right. And so I'm glad that you feel like he was a, a, a well-rounded character, that there was some depth to him and to Marcus Battle. Um, it's hard to create. And as you know, as a writer, it's hard to create characters who are not just... A, unlikable, and, and B, flat. Yeah, I still hated his guts, but um, <laughs> there, was, uh, there was some depth there, unlike a lot of other post-apocalyptic antagonists. Um, yeah, there was, there was a story there, and, and uh, he had kind of a character arc of his own, so I, I, I liked that about the Roof character. Um, did you see the twist how, coming? Did you see the twist coming at the end of book two without giving it away? No, no I did not. Nope, that that caught me off guard. Um, yeah, I, I won't spoil it, but um, yeah, it, and that's another thing is is kind of these uh, these twists that kind of fill in a whole bunch of background, and and you kind of read it and you go, aha, that that makes sense. Okay, now I'm understanding this, you know. So. Um, the, the Marcus Battle character, by the way, how much how much would you say of him is autobiographical? Other than his love for his family, probably almost nothing. I mean, I'm I'm the guy who's going to die like five minutes into the apocalypse. I'm I'm not going to be, <laughs> um, I, you know, I'm not. I don't think uh, I'm not as tough as he is. Uh, you know, I don't. Uh, I'm I'm not a. Sh- as sharpshooter as he is, I, you know, um, I didn't serve our country the way he did. And so, you know, I'm sure in every character you write, there's a little bit of you just because you can't help but make it that way. Um, but, you know, Marcus is, is, uh, is in no, I don't think he bears really any resemblance to me other than the fact that, that he, that he loves his family. Okay. Cause I, the, the book I just finished, um, there are little moments here and there where the the main character is autobiographical. For example, my wife and I, every once in a while, a bunch of people, like at a dinner party, people go out on the patio and look at the stars, and people will be pointing out different formations. It's um, my wife and I make it a point to mangle that on purpose. You know, that, look, there's the Ford Taurus. You know, and uh, oh, there's the Big Dipper, there's the Little Dipper. Oh, and there's the ma- medium-sized Dipper, you know. And Very funny. 
purposely mangle it, just like my lead character did. Well, um, also, I noticed in your book there are references to uh, many, many movies. Um, and here's a partial lip list. Uh, Pink Panther, Raising Arizona, uh, Dumb and Dumber, Mad Max, Castaway, uh, Red Dawn, of course, um, and Star Wars. Is there any pattern to quoting, to, to referencing movies in your, in your book? Or is it just situational? Or is it just uh, haphazard or, or what? Well, all of them to some degree are movies that I liked. Um, and the reason I did it is I wanted there to be sort of this, um, I kind of felt like it added a little bit to battle the fact that, you know, he's, well, I mean, I know if I were stuck, uh, you know, with nothing else to do, uh, I'd probably, if I had access to movies, I just watch movies over and over again that I liked. And so, um, I kind of took that idea a little bit from I Am Legend. You know, the idea that Will Smith's character has memorized these movies that he's watched. But then I, I took it a step further and, and I had him name some of his weapons after characters and movies that he'd watched over and over again. And, and that idea kind of came, and I mentioned in the book, comes from Castaway, where Tom Hanks' character names the volleyball Wilson. Oh, yeah, Wilson, yeah. So, <laughs> so, that's, so that's kind of, I kind of combine those two ideas, and, and he, he names the guns, and he kind of personifies them because he has nobody else to talk to. Um, and so all of those are movies that I either, you know, almost all of them are movies that I like, but I also felt maybe fit, you know, the, fit the moment. Uh, and, and that's why I use those particular movies, but I also love movies. And so that's why I kind of included references to them in in the Allegiant series. There are a lot of pop culture references and you mentioned you and your wife intentionally getting getting the um the constellations wrong uh in the allegiance series there's a character who is always mangling pop culture references and the main character is always correcting her um is that on, on purpose yes yeah I, I mean i i i do that one it's it's just kind of a, a, a it adds a little bit of humor uh in the yeah. midst of all these action scenes but it's also i love pop culture and you know, in our house, we're always talking about it, and someone's always, including me, getting something wrong, and the other person always corrects them on it. So uh, that's <laughs> kind of where that came from. Okay. Yeah, like, uh, maybe I was reading too much into it, but, like, Mad Max uh, seemed to have a parallel with Battle in, in that his wife uh, died. Um, well, no, you weren't reading too much into it. I mean, Mad Max is referenced. Red Dawn is referenced. I mean, those are clearly, you know, apocalyptic stories. Um, and in, in Red Dawn, you remember that there were you know, people were uh, separated and, and enslaved, essentially. And so, you know, yeah. so, yeah, I mean, there are there are apocalyptic references to things. And, and also, oh, the, Pink Panther, the Pink Panther, I mean, he's smart, but a little bungling. And, and Marcus, you know, is kind of rusty and makes a lot of mistakes. Huh. Um, like Raising Arizona, for example, um, is a comedy about some prisoners who escape prison and make so many mistakes uh, throughout their, their crime spree that they just throw in the towel and then try to escape back into prison, as, as I recall. And there is kind of a, a big, um, you know, it, it, throughout the books, I think Marcus Vettel leaves home and then he comes back home. I thought maybe that was uh, some kind of a metaphor there that you were, while you were referring to that movie. Well, I, 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 
what I was referring to there actually was High McDonough, uh, Nicholas's Nicholas Cage character in that in, in that movie, which is one of my favorite movies. You know, he's a guy who uh, has two sides and is constantly struggling to do the right thing, which is, I think, Marcus Battle. Um, you know, in, in that he and, and also, you know, the, the the landscape of Arizona isn't all that different from from West Texas, where he lives, too. Yep. 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 They are similar. I've been been in both. Yeah, uh, I wanted to change gears a little bit. Uh, in the book three, um, the Wall book, you mentioned the Paladero Canyon in Texas, uh, and it sounds like a, a fascinating place. Have, have you been there? It sounds I, I've never been there. Yes, but I, uh, I, we went there. We actually took a spring break trip a few years ago to. Uh, Albuquerque and Santa Fe, and on the way we spent a night in Amarillo and, and went to Paladura Canyon, and it is it's enormous and it's beautiful, uh, and uh, you know I, I felt like it was this this place that probably not a lot of people know about outside of Texas, and and yeah. yet it's you know I think it's second in size maybe to the Grand Canyon um, in terms of its overall area, and it's I just felt like it, I couldn't write a book in Texas, you know, without about an apocalypse without including that canyon. It just felt like I had to do it, so that's why. Well, I've never been there, but apparently I've driven by it. And next time I'm in the area, I'll definitely make sure to to check it out. It sounds fascinating. And and you mentioned it was, I think, seventy miles long. Uh, that's that's pretty close to uh, the Grand Canyon size. Yeah, it's it is. It's not as wide as the Grand Canyon, uh, but you can you know you can drive your car down into the bottom of it. Uh, they have campsites down in the bottom, and we drove our car down and walked around. And uh, would love to go back and camp there, or just haven't taken the time to do it. Yeah, well, I think the Grand Canyon is is a lot. A lot of it is off limits, but the Paladura Canyon might be a, more able to go you know hike through it and camp in it. Yeah, it's not it's not as deep either. So okay, all right. Um, I I think I'm coming to the end of uh, of my questions. Um, are you're um, still writing? Is that correct? You're you're writing all the time. It sounds like every day. Uh, I was writing up until the time you guys called too. Um, wow. I've got, uh, I've got uh, Spaceman, which I'm in edit right now, and uh, and then I'm, I'm writing the Nicholas Smith Kindle World book that'll be out in October, Spaceman out in November. I hope to have another book that I'll start here in a few weeks out in February. So yeah, I, I it's uh, it's a hobby that's turned into a kind of a second full-time job, but I, I love it. <laughs> that's my situation too, you know, doing both of these shows started off as a hobby, kind of turned into a second job for me now. Well, and it, mm-hmm. but you probably love it, right? I do. I wouldn't keep doing it if I didn't. I tell you what, I'm not getting rich at it, and I can tell you that. So <laughs> the only reason the only reason I do it is because I love doing it, and I, and I like you know helping people with the information. Yeah. Otherwise, if I was only in it for the money, I would have quit a long time ago. Yeah. Well, there's no better reason to do something than to love it. Yeah. I got a question I'd like to throw in, if you guys don't mind. Yeah. Sure. I want to shift topics a little bit. Um. I'd like both of you guys to weigh in on something that I've been thinking about that's been on my mind lately. I think, this, and this is just a prediction, it's just an opinion of mine, but I think this country, possibly most of the world, 
we are headed real soon for an economic collapse, uh, probably a partial collapse. I hope not. I hope not a total uh, and complete collapse. But what do you guys think of that? What's, what's your opinion on that? Uh, well, just myself, I think that's more likely than people um, give it credit for. Uh, we're, the debt that we're going in uh, so routinely uh, is just not sustainable. And um, I think the only way the government might see our way out of it is to come up with uh, kind of a hyperinflation, uh, which uh, will, will lead to food rights and so forth. So, yeah, I think that's that's more likely than people think. Do you write about that at all, Tom? Uh, I haven't uh, yet. I, I haven't yet, but uh, you know, I don't think the, I don't think Germany would be telling its people to stockpile if if they weren't concerned about something. Um, and and I do agree with Cal that we, you know we can't keep on the same economic path that we've been on. The debt is unsustainable, not just for us, but for most of Western Europe. And something has to give. And you know, ultimately, it's. Ultimately, it's people like us right in the middle who are the ones who end up uh, bearing the brunt of it. Yeah, what I'm concerned about is services that get cut off, checks that don't arrive in people's mailboxes. And those two things right there, when that kind of stuff happens, I've always kind of subscribed to the philosophy that desperate people do desperate things during desperate times. And I think that's yeah. what we're kind of about to see. No matter which way this election goes, I still think that that we're we're about to see that. You could well, be. I, I think the um, likelihood of people receiving their checks and the checks just buy anything that, that might. I think that personally, I think that's pretty real, realistic. Yeah, the checks not if either they don't receive them or they do receive them and they're practically worthless by the time they get them. Right. And that's, you know, it, during desperate times, people will do crazy and sometimes violent things. And that's, and that's you know, that's where uh, post-apocalyptic authors, I think, make their living and why the genre uh, is so successful uh, is because people can imagine uh, the, the difficult situation that they'll find themselves in and are they prepared? Can they defend themselves? I think that's why you find that that a lot of the stereotypically the heroes in a lot of these books are former, you know, uh, former uh, military experts who are really good with weapons because that's how people envision themselves surviving these things. And and I think as much as anything else, post-apocalyptic stories, people love the story of survival as much as they do anything else. And they like to put themselves in those situations because they ultimately, I mean, zombies aside, Ultimately, they are so realistic. Yeah. yeah. And the reason I asked the question, Tom, is because, you know, you are a post-apocalyptic author. And so I thought maybe that might be a little food for thought, maybe in some of your future writings. You've got my next book for me. I'll give you a... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just planted a seed. I like planting seeds and see how they grow. <laughs> awesome. Um, Cal, anything else you wanted to add? I uh, just wanted to have uh, some uh, wrap-up questions for Tom. Uh, you mentioned some future books you're working on. Do you have any projects going on that, that you want the listeners to know about? Sure. Well, I will, I will say this in a shameless plug, and that is that my first book, Sedition, is actually, uh, coincidentally, free 
for download tomorrow, Monday, and Tuesday. And uh, intention, the follow-up, is kind of discounted in, uh, through that period of time. So, uh, and, and also Allegiance, which is the traditionally published book, uh, the first of that series is also free, uh, and that's on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So you can get free books, uh, save yourself a few bucks, and if you like them, uh, you can leave reviews and buy the next ones, and if you don't, uh, they were free. Now let me throw in, because some people might be listening to this podcast in the future, it is going to release tomorrow morning, Sunday the 28th of August 2016. So Tom, you're talking about that special is going to be the 28th, 29th, and 30th? Yes. Sorry about that. Forgot it was it's okay. appearing on Sunday. Yes, it's 28th, 29th, and 30th for Sedition, which is a political conspiracy. Okay. And then uh, for Allegiance, which is kind of an action-adventure science fiction book, that uh, that is free on uh, the 29th, 30th, and 31st. And that, those are going to be free through Amazon? On Amazon. You just uh, one click and they're dumped to your Kindle or iPad for nothing. That's cool. That's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, Tom, where, how can uh, readers keep in touch with you? Maybe you can mention a website or Facebook sure. or Twitter or, or whatever. Yeah, on Facebook, I'm at um, author Tom Abrams, and my website is TomAbramsBooks.com, and it's spelled T-O-M-A-B-R-A-H-A-M-S, like Abrahams, uh, books.com. And you can sign up for my uh, email list at either Facebook or on my website, and uh, I send, you know, one, maybe sometimes two emails a month. Uh, and I, I promote my work, other authors' work, uh, discounts, that kind of stuff. Okay, okay. Thanks. That's, that's all I have. I wanted to thank Tom Abrams and, uh, and Bob, Abram, uh, Bob Main for allowing me to participate in this. Yeah, this was good. Guys, thanks very much. I, I enjoyed sitting in on this, listening. I got some things out of it. I hope listeners did, too. And, um, Cal, remind people one more time where they can find your books. Thanks. Uh, all on Amazon right now, um, Dirt Cheap, Valuable Prepping. And also the, the latest one is EMP, The End of the Grid as We Know It. Also, The Camouflage Cross. They're all available on Amazon. Uh, and Amazon Kindle. Great. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening to another episode of today's Survival Show. I'm Bob Main, your host. Our guests were Tom Abrams and Cal Wilson, two excellent authors. Uh, I think I'm going to invite them back to maybe do a part two on this. So, uh, without moving on any further with anything else, I think enough has been said. Thanks for listening. Remember, it's my goal to help you do what you can with what you have, wherever you are. I'll catch you next time. Goodbye.